1: As bad as 2023 is now, this is the best that it's ever going to be from now on.
0: Welcome to The Futurists. I'm your host, Brett King, and this week I'm in Bangkok, Thailand for New Year's with my son, Thomas, and caught up with a good mate of mine, Paul Ark. He's a uh, American Thai futurist based in uh, Thailand, and uh, he wouldn't probably call himself a futurist, but he definitely is, and he is also in the venture capital space in uh, clean tech, renewable tech, green tech. So, Paul Ark, welcome to the futurists. Thank you very much for having me, Brett. We've been talking about this for a while. We have, we have. Um, now, I know. You, so, I introduced you as a futurist because. I've always known you as a futurist, thinking about the future. We've had some amazing conversations in the past about things. In fact, we did an event together, which was a... Uh, was it a workshop or a, a panel with um, TechSource, virtually, which was on what the 22nd century was going to be like. Do you remember that?
1: Oh, yeah. That was... Uh, what was it? That, that was like uh, something for Clubhouse? Was that yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. We yeah. just had a conversation. We were exactly. just... Yeah. shooting the breeze about just weird you know I, I think it was one of those things that when, when tech sauce arranged it it would be kind of this curated thing and right. they'd have a moderator and then as soon as we just started chatting
0: it was just we just moderated each they other. just
1: they were good enough to just stay quiet and let us talk for an hour and yeah, then they absolutely. said
0: okay that's it okay time <laughs> otherwise you'll go on for three weeks yeah absolutely. so that is definitely uh, the way um but um you know, Thailand's an interesting place. Um, obviously, you grew up in, in the States, right? Yeah, yeah, born and uh, raised, and, but I've been living in Asia for about 30 years now. Right. So, for people that aren't aware of your background, of course, you spent uh, a fair bit of time at Apple, working on their retail presence across yep. uh, Asia. So, choosing retail locations for Apple stores around the world—that's pretty. That's a pretty cool job. Sounds that cool. was, yeah, that was an interesting moment in my life. <laughs> yeah. I,
1: I've had a lot of different careers. So, you know, when I think about Apple, you know, that was well over a decade ago. Yeah. So it's just one of those
0: things where. You know, As part of the kaleidoscope. It, it, one, of, one of my mm. many past lives yeah fair enough um, yeah that's uh, that's it's cool to sort of have that background and um, you've been in Thailand for how long uh, well you know this is my third time living in Thailand and the longest stretch so I've been in Asia for 30
1: years I, I lived in Thailand for probably the f- you know the first time I moved here was probably about three two three years uh, and then I think the second time I moved here was probably another three years, mm. uh, and then I moved back here from mainland China in 2015, and I've been here
0: since. And were you in Beijing or Shanghai, or where were you in China? Yes and yes, and <laughs> yes. You know, uh, you know, I, I, because I worked in real estate at the time, I was spending a
1: lot of time on the road. Right. So um, nominally, I was uh, based in Shanghai first, and then Beijing, uh, and then Shanghai. Uh, but pretty much spending time in probably about a dozen,
0: dozen and a half cities on a regular basis. So what appeals to you about Asia at the moment in terms of economic cycles, in terms of just generally the opportunities here? Um, <laughs> well, it,
1: it's an interesting question because it's, it's not so much like, oh, I'm here because of economic. Like I've lived here. I've been here for a while. I, I actually moved out here because, you know, I, I want to be with my wife. Uh, who's here? Uh, and uh, you know, so it's you know, I'm in Asia for the long haul. But what I think is quite interesting, um, I, I first moved to Thailand in '94, you know, and this is just as the the, the Asian boom was taking off, uh, soon to be followed by the Asian financial crisis. But back then, people were saying, "Oh, it's you know, this is Southeast Asia's time," mm-hmm. like it's it's on this 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 trajectory. It's on you know, the second stage of the rocket booster and it's taken off. Uh, and the funny thing is, is where Southeast Asia now, in terms of its momentum and growth and development, is probably what folks had in mind back in the late 90s. You know, Because I think Southeast Asia's growth spurt was very short-lived and it wasn't that sustained. Uh, and then I think it set back a lot of the economies, both politically and economically, for years. Uh, but now if we look at you know where Southeast Asia's been maybe in the last ten years uh, you know, probably at the beginning of you know this whole tech cycle you know it, it's actually been a period of sustained growth um, you know China's kind of went through its period of development and so you know I, I think when 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 people were talking about Southeast Asian growth the first time around they didn't anticipate that China would boom as as much as it did yeah. and India for that matter yeah yeah so as soon as it did then it's like you know, Southeast Asia where, you know, it's, you know, because everyone was so focused on China and India, now that China and India have kind of gone through, you know, the their kind of inflection points in the S-curve, now people are like, ah, okay, there's Southeast Asia. Now we're ready to start pouring money in and we'll start seeing where, you know, economic growth is going, um, you know, probably a lot more politically stable in the region than
0: it was, you know, 20-some 20, 20 years ago. Yeah so uh so, yeah, no, I it, think that 's generally the case. I mean, we make a big fuss about China and taiwan and and you know the the South China Sea and so forth, but actually, from a historical perspective, at least the last one hundred and twenty years it's it's it 's much more stable here than it 's been for a while, right yeah,
1: yeah, no, so I, I would say you know the the vision of Southeast Asia in two thousand and twenty three is what i think folks were expecting back in you know 94 95 yeah. so it's finally here it's you know, it's the the south you know the southeast asian era is finally here it's just you know maybe 25 years a little bit tardy
0: so um, you know one of the things we like to do on the show and and this is uh, uh, this is certainly applicable in in your case is look at forecasting methodologies and and um, you are in the business now of trying to pick winners from a venture capital perspective. Um, and so I want to talk about that methodology and how you select and your thesis because you've created a new mm. fund. But before that, let's talk about the methodology of how you choose an Apple store in a city like you know, Guangzhou or, um, you know, or in Singapore or places like this. You know, um, in terms of long-term planning, because Apple is not going to invest in a, in, in a store for just a few years and see how it goes, sure. right, how do you go through the process of selecting a location that ha- is going to have the longevity for a brand like Apple?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a great question. I mean, I so I, I came up in retail uh, at a time when e- e-commerce was just starting to take off, but I think Apple retail, even though they, they are... Uh, you know, a very, very, I don't want to say capable because it understates it. They're very good at omni-channel, but, you know, the folks on the retail side are very much traditional bricks and mortar retail, Um, at least those of us that actually opened up the stores. Uh, And a lot of our location analysis techniques are very steeped in traditional retail concepts, which is basically... You know, foot traffic, right. catchment areas, demographics. Uh, a- anyone that's opened up retail stores will, will understand the language. But it, it's always, you know, just identifying, you know, which cities, which neighborhoods have the type of demographic profile of the customers that you're looking for. Um, so, uh, and then basically understanding, you know, based on the format of your store, you know, if I open a store here, what is my, my catchment area? Basically, where is the bulk of my customers coming from beyond those that might be like tourists or out-of-towners because, you know, you need that sort of local customer base. Uh, And so, you know, if you're like a 7-Eleven, you're probably looking at a catchment area of just, you know, maybe a few hundred meters. Or if you're in Thailand, it's probably just as far as, you know, until you hit the 7-Eleven across the street, you know, so the catchment areas can be quite small and dense. Um, you know, if you talk about, say, an Apple flagship store, the catchment areas can be quite broad. Right. You know, um, you know, for the longest time, you had, you know, maybe three or four humongous Apple stores serving the entire New York metropolitan area. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: and each of them was doing, you know, um, you know, bang up business. A yeah, just phenomenal yeah. business. Uh, so, you know, when I was doing retail, you know, we did a lot of analysis on okay. What's our expected catchment? You know, how many customers are we going to have within, say, you know, we could either look at catchment in terms of physical distance, so you know, a three-kilometer catchment area, or driving time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how many customers are within fifteen minutes of driving time? So, the interesting thing that I, you know, the interesting thing about Apple stores is when we first started opening them in China, uh, we went in knowing that. Um, Like there were a lot of Apple product that was being sold in China through resellers. Right. You know, either the uh, Apple premium resellers, the APRs, or just standard resellers which are the notch below that didn't have as much marketing support. But we knew that any store that we opened, any flagship store that we opened would absolutely decimate the sales of any reseller within a two kilometer radius. Right. Because people were like, you know, there's just no point in going. Um, unless Phones were in very short supply, and people were scrounging around for other yeah. retail store locations. So, um, and, and we saw that, you know, across the board, we saw that in Beijing when we opened up there. Um, a lot of the resellers that I used to go to in Hong Kong uh, before I joined Apple, uh, you know, once I opened up stores there, you know, my favorite resellers weren't there anymore because we would literally open up in the same mall. Um, so yeah, it was just really understanding, um, you know, where our key markets were. Mm. You know, China was incredibly difficult because those cities grow so fast.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, China is one of those places where it could be a city of like two million people one day, and then three years later, it's like tripled in size. Yeah, uh, and that's not even hyperbolic. That's yeah, yeah, like yeah. actually what happened. I don't
0: think a lot of our listeners, um, you know, particularly those based in the U.S. Realize the incredible amount of growth that's happened in China over the last 30 years.
1: And and China was a weird anomaly because uh, when we were first, when Apple was first looking at the market, and our senior executives in the US were like, okay, can we get like a rundown of all the cities in China that have at least a million people? Um, (laughs) And I said, that's going to take a long time. There's a hundred in yeah. 20 cities yeah. with over a million people, and that just blew their minds, because they come from the US, yeah, yeah. a million person market yeah, yeah. is a major metropolis. In China, that's like, oh, a quaint little yes. a hamlet. Little village. Yeah. Um, and so then they said, uh, okay, how about uh, 2 million? And like, okay, that brings it down to about 50. So it's like, if you want like detailed analysis, then give me like six months, and they're like. Yeah. Okay. How about you know? So they, they said. Um, so what's the threshold if we want to look at say, ten cities? And I said, okay, you know, four
0: to six million. Yeah. yeah
1: and it, it just blew their mind. Okay, if we want to, if we want to look at, at the top twenty cities, we're looking at a minimum market, yeah. of four to six million, and that was just mind blowing to them. Uh, and it's then okay. it meant, it's like, where in the city do we go? Because if we're looking at cities like Guangzhou, or not Guangzhou, but Chongqing, Shanghai, you know, these are cities of like, you know,
0: 15, 20 million people. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. that's like a small- it's, it's the population of Australia. Right? Yeah. It's like one city. So, um, But yeah, I mean, there are cities that have that population, Sao Paulo and others. But it's in China, it's, it's, it's scary how many of them are... Okay, so now let's uh, um, talk about your career shift and why you, you know, decided to go down the route of sustainability and uh, um, Mm. climate resilience and so forth. So from my um, observation, being that we're friends on on Facebook and and we're friends IRL, um, I I watched you go through a period of um, really... Voracious learning, you know, mm. um, doing a bunch of courses on AI and climate and, and green tech. And, of course, you were, uh, you led, um, how we met, of, co- of course, was when you were at uh, CM Commercial Bank, bank uh, running their um, venture capital. Line. Yeah. And from there, you went on to uh, Gobi uh, Partners. or There was somewhere in, in between that, right? No, no, that was it. Yeah, 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 you yeah, got that right. Yeah. Um, and then when um, the uh, pandemic came along... <laughs> You did do a bunch of um, work and progress on yourself, sort of expanding your horizon. Yeah, I mean, I'm
1: slightly flipped there because I, so, yeah. you know, it was all the. So, I mean, well, I, I guess to sort of pick up from your question, yeah. So, I mean, I, I spent uh, I spent four years doing fintech, deep tech investments for Siam Commercial Bank's Bank CVC Fund, um, which was also kind of fun because it allowed me to start flexing some of the futurist muscles that, you know, I I think very, very few VCs really ever... Like, VCs are, you know, supposed to be investing in future tech. Most of them don't. Right. Most of them just say whatever is the hot, you know, tech of the moment. Um, And I don't think they spend a lot of time looking beyond sort of the fun cycle. So, like, what's going to be...
0: We had uh, Pablos Holman on. I don't know if you know Pablos, but um, Pablos is uh, doing... uh, um, Space-based energy systems, microwave energy Mm. systems. He's doing vertical farming stuff, you know, all really futuristic uh, stuff right on the edge. But as you say, I know a lot of VCs, and you two are the only that I know that I would consider futurists.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think a lot of the work I did on the fintech side was less about, okay, we're going to invest in specific financial technologies. And I, I actually kind of pushed my team to say, what does the world look like? In thirty years, mm. uh, you know, and, and not like super science fictiony, but what does it reasonably right. look no. like? And you know, I, I'd ask them to look at like films like, um, you know, like Minority Report, those that are kind of futuristic
0: but not. You know, but not spasmodically, far, fantastically
1: psychedelically. Yeah, not
0: set so far in the future that you can't sort of see the current world yeah. in that. Yeah. Like
1: you know, you, you, I wanted kind of near future type of experience where people would say, yeah, that would that would totally make sense. And I wanted them to kind of imagine scenarios like that and say, well, how how do people do transactions? How do they do banking? How do they interact? Do they need banking? What what does that type of service look like? Uh, and then you know we would come up with scenarios and start selecting like what seems like the most realistic vision um and then we would walk back the technologies 30 years and say okay if if that seems like a reasonably good vision of the future and how people might either transact or you know accumulate wealth or store their wealth or spend their wealth then let's walk it back a bit mm. so if that's the way people are going to do uh, that's the way people are going to purchase goods in say the movie Ready Player one right. you know with the VR goggles and right. the drone the delivery wallet
0: system you know stuff, yeah. where the, you know they showed the drones delivering right, pizzas right. Pizza and so it 's like okay so and what, that's all pretty realistic given what, where, where we see investment going yeah right? and
1: like you know Amazon was doing drone delivery right. you know tests a little while ago and so if we said you know that's kind of what people are if that's a reasonable vision of the future mm. then you know we should walk it back and say what are the technologies that are critical today yeah, yeah. much like if anyone you know like just you know just because anyone who grew up in star trek
0: yeah yeah you know, in the 60s yes. are going to create flip phones in
1: the 90s and repli-
0: replicators nano, n- nanotech right so yeah so yeah. i mean
1: i think that's where i started thinking about doing that and then um after i came out of fintech uh and going into the pandemic that's when you know, I had a lot of time to say, okay, you know, I'm I'm not working at the moment. I want to kind of reorient myself and start going down the path of some areas that I didn't have full reign to do when I was working for a bank. So it was around things like um, ESG, sustainability. Right. Um, you know, ESG was quite important because I think when you are the VC for a bank, you know, one of your priorities when you deal with startups is not just Growth at all costs. You know, yeah. most, you know, most sort of abide by that philosophy of like, oh, we have to move fast and break things. You know, that whole Zuckerberg like movement, you know, that Zuckerberg thing, that that banks hate yeah. that. And if you are if you are a CVC for a bank that reports to a central bank, you're saying, here's how we're
0: hedging our risk. Here's so CVC corporate, they say,
1: we're, right? yeah, we're we're covering our ass, and this is how we do it. So when we go in, and inevitably we'll make an investment with other. VC funds, and there's always going to be one fund that says, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna figure out how to help this company grow as fast as possible." It's like, "Okay, great, you guys got that covered." Um, while you guys manage the offense, you're going to score. We'll be the backfield. We're going to be the defenders. We're going to be the goaltenders. We're going to make sure that you know we don't succumb to any of the big risks uh, that these startups might do. And a lot of it'll be around governance. Mm. So, um, you know, so so governance was quite one of those areas that. We were spending a lot of time thinking about and was neglected in VC. Um, I also had a, a very strong interest in boosting the profile of women in VC and tech. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, part of it is just because I've always been surrounded by strong women. I, I married a strong woman. You know, I was you know the son of a strong woman. Um, and you know, it's one of those things where when you have an ecosystem like Thailand where it's very nascent, we can't afford to ignore half yeah. of our population. yeah. yeah. Like you know. If you're China and you've got a zillion people, then you know you're never short of talent. But if you're a market of 70 million people, you know you need to leverage, you know, your your women and your men. Um, and so, so yeah, so, so level side was quite important as
0: well. How, how did you get the? I mean, so you've talked a little bit about the sort of corporate social responsibility and so forth. But how did you get the bug, for? Creating the current fund you have, which is, yeah. is a great well you explain the, the fund you've got at the moment and how you and, and where did you get the drive for that?
1: Yeah, so that, that so I guess you know, in trying to sort of beef up my understanding
0: around ESG and
1: sustainability, um, and, and the E as well, so understanding the, the environment side. You know, I spent a lot of time just reading during the pandemic. I, I took a lot of online courses at Coursera um really just methodically going down through each piece you know so for e I want to understand you know resources I want to understand extraction you know I want to understand you know carbon accounting for s I want to understand you know race relations I want to understand gender issues and literally just methodically going piece by piece uh, and it was through the pandemic when I was approached by um, Gobi partners which is this institutional VC fund uh, in the region and you know they they approached me and said you know we're, we want to we want to launch an ESG practice, or you know, we want to start implementing ESG process in what we do. Uh, and would you be interested in working with us and coming on board? And so I actually wound up doing that for two and a half years as their head of ESG. Um, and at one point realized that you know where I really wanted to start moving to was something a little bit more intimate. You know, at that time, Gobi was already you know. Well past one billion in assets under management, they had you know seventy professionals. They they covered across the region, which means that anything that I wanted to do that was thematic around either climate or gender um, was going to be a, a tough hill to climb when you you're having to move like a super tanker that mm. you know may not want to move in the same right. direction. So. Um, you know, late last year, I was being courted by uh, a woman who's wanted to launch uh, a climate fund in Southeast Asia with a strong emphasis on gender, which was the intersection of all the things that I was kind of interested in at the time. Uh, and so earlier this year, I basically pulled the trigger and came on board and said, okay, I want to help, uh, you know, join you and a small group of people to build this fund to not, so basically, I guess, uh, develop a an inclusive climate investment agenda, which meant that we're looking at climate and we wanted to make sure that women as both uh, you know, entrepreneurs creating solutions but also as stakeholders on the receiving end of the solutions are factoring into
0: our investments. Very cool. Well, at this point in the show, we like to do what we call the lightning round, which is I'm going to ask you some short, punchy uh, questions just keep the answers short just so people can get to know you a bit better. sure all right so um this is the lightning round okay paul um let me ask you what's the first time you can remember being exposed to science fiction Science fiction. Either like a movie or book or something like uh,
1: that. You know, probably, uh, you know, I, I think at a very early age, a lot in the movies. Actually, I don't know. To be honest, probably it goes back to just Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah. It's probably oh, just watching like yeah, Jetsons, yeah, yeah, yeah. Super Friends. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I first got into it more proactively uh, when I was in junior high. And I, you know, I know it's supposed to be short and punchy. But um, I picked up my first science fiction novel that I really got into, which was... Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, Princess of Mars, uh, the first of the eleven. It's one Carson of my favorites. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, and so that sort of touched off a lifelong love of
0: science fiction, um, reading science fiction. What, what did What did you think of uh, John Carter, the Disney movie? I disliked it yeah interesting.
1: um I, I i loved how they visualized it but yeah. you know the storyline is just yeah, yeah. you know they hollywoodified it yeah true um true. you know to be honest nowadays that would have made a great series yes right? yes
0: I, no i agree yeah, in, in fact we, you try
1: to cram the yeah. entire ethos of it in two hours it's not going to work but you're, yeah. you if you were to create like a you know you create a serial which yeah, is yeah. like you know kind of like the old uh, yeah yeah i get it hollywood cereals and that, that would have been great in kind of a
0: uh, streaming we're format off, we're getting off the topic all right what technology <laughs> do you think has most changed humanity oh most changed humanity
1: uh well okay i guess in light of all the work i've been doing it's probably uh, a lot of the work around fertilizers and the green
0: revolution okay cool very interesting is there a futurist or entrepreneur that has influenced you or being a mentor to you um and uh why have they been a a positive influence you mean present company excluded yeah of course because you're the only futurist that i really get to hang out with um no i you
1: know i i don't i don't know if there's any singular person you know i think i'm an amalgamation of all the different incredible science fiction writers and
0: thinkers that i kind of glom off of sure um, is there a prediction that an entrepreneur or a futurist or a sci-fi pr- uh, a practitioner has made that stands out to you as uh, particularly prescient? Ooh, wow!
1: Um, yeah, I, I. I don't know about an investor, but you know, I I, I always love to come back to. Um, The movie Minority Report, mm. just because so much of it, so much of it's starting to come true. So much of it looks like it is going to come true, and, and again, um, I haven't read the original Philip K. Dick work, right. so I don't know how much of Spielberg's vision was glommed off of uh, mm. the short story. Yeah. But you know, so if it's mostly Spielberg, if it's different, then it's got to be Spielberg, right? It's
0: it's or, or the writers. Said, oh, he did definitely think- take license, but the core of the, the story is still there, yeah. yeah. Um, so on that, is there a science fiction story or a treatment you've read on the future that is most representative of the future you hope for?
1: Hope for? Um, well, if we're talking far future, I'd love to see something like Roddenberry's Star Trek, mm. you know, where we've ended Same. war at least on yeah. earth you know where we've ended poverty Money is gone and, you know we've everywhere. ended racism yeah. we we've ended a lot of isms yes yeah you know, that's that i think his vision of the future is
0: probably the most pure the most beautiful yeah. in terms of this yeah. is this is my optimistic it's view. a very common yeah. answer actually yeah so. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Futurists with myself, Brett King, and uh, our guest this week is Paul Ark. And we'll be back right after this message from our sponsors. Provoked Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia-Pacific and the FinTech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one FinTech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to the Futurist. I'm your host, Brett King. I'm here with Paul Ark. What is the name of your fund that you're you, you're running today, Paul? The Radical Fund. The Radical Fund. That that suits suits your persona. Yeah, well, we are. Well, I I would say that we are taking a very radical approach,
1: and I uh, by me it's like, or white we it's like the rest of the team. So it's not just me.
0: So um, when we're we're looking out at the issues of climate, um, the debate on. Whether climate change is is happening is sort of really over right now. And while there's still some debate over the extent by which mankind contributed to climate change, the requirement for adaptation, um, infrastructure resilience, food security, all of those issues that come from climate, as well as dealing with extreme weather events and the property damage and so forth that's going to come with it, Relocation requirements, et cetera mass immigration, all of these problems how do you How do you see that cycle developing? Mm-hmm. so when is it do you think that humanity is going to start to adjust priorities towards adaptation and mitigation
1: well yeah so it's it's you know it's a bit of a binary there because I think if we think about climate. Um, you know, the easiest way to think about it is either in terms of mitigation or adaptation, um, either separately or operating in conjunction. But uh, for those that are a little bit less climate oriented uh, or don't work in the space, you know, climate mitigation is basically focusing on uh, how to prevent the world from getting warmer. Right. And a lot of that is around sort of energy transition. So how do we electrify our grids? How do we move away from fossil fuels to renewable, to renewable uh, uh, energy, um, all in the way of sort of reducing carbon emissions, bringing down uh, carbon in the atmosphere, and preventing the world from getting warmer? The, the flip side of that is, is adaptation, as you were talking about. Uh, so adaptation basically focuses on how do we deal with a warmer world? So, if we were to go completely zero carbon emissions, like right now, and for some, we were able to wave a magical wand, we're now completely 100% renewable, and we're not emitting anything, um, it is still going to be a hotter world for the next, well, through our lifetimes. Right. Because to be able to bring down the amount of carbon that's already in the atmosphere, I think around 424 parts per million. Um, down to a pre-industrial uh, amount of about 250 is probably going to take anywhere between a few hundred years to maybe thousand plus years. So we are now. So everything. That, so I, I tell people, you know, 2023 in terms of record heat and droughts and once in a century climate disasters that are now once in a decade climate disasters. And multiple this,
0: cities dealing with one in a thousand year flooding events. Yes. I said
1: yeah. as bad as twenty twenty three is now, this is the best that it's ever going to be from now on. Because we can either hold the line or it's just gonna get worse.
0: That's a that's a great line. Too.
1: Yeah, and it's depressing. Yeah. But if we take it as a given that we're gonna live in a hotter world, how do we adapt? You know, um, and I think you were mentioning how do how do we adapt in terms of food security? So you know if we've got you know a lot of seasonal variation, then now our ability to predict you know how much food we're able to produce becomes highly volatile. Um, if we talk about uh, you know things like you know hurricanes, floods, you know all these wild um, environmental events, then how do we build cities and communities that are more climate resilient? Both in terms of withstanding damage, but also how do we bounce back from damage? So, you know, just every aspect, you know, how do we adapt to that? So, if we think about in terms of those two binaries, we would think, okay, those are going to be equally important because, you know, um, we do have to hold the line in terms of, you know, it getting warmer. And we have to adjust to the fact that it is going to get warmer. Today, however, about 95%, 95 ish percent of all investment in climate goes to mitigation. So we have not even thought about how do we deal with you know the world going to even if it doesn't go to hell in a handbasket, it's at least gonna to go to heck in a handbasket, yeah. you know, it's it's there. And we're not really spending the amount of money that we need in infrastructure, in building more resilient supply chains. You know, we've seen what supply chains disruptions right can pandemic, look like during yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. All it takes is like yeah, was it the evergreen getting stuck
0: in the yeah just one thing. canal yeah, yeah, and yeah. that
1: set back, you know that, that did billions of dollars in damage and um, so yeah so we so let's we riff on that
0: Let, let's riff on that a bit um, energy transition is is a clear goal but there's a lot of stuff that, that you you talked about there in terms of trajectory and so forth uh, so I'm I'm interested in you know at what point. Does, cause, you know, you talked about it's, it's going to only get worse from here. And I'm on the same page as you on that front. But to the point where we have to mobilize considerable resources to do this, like I'm talking about double digit percentage of global GDP, um, where there is broad social demand for this type of action because we don't see that yet. We see a, a groundswell occurring, but we don't see mainstream pressure on politics and and corporations yet to, to do this with a sense of urgency. There, mm. there, is, there is... Directionally, we're going the right way, but it's not happening fast enough. We're not going to hit the goals for the Paris Accord. And, yeah. and we know that... Um, we know that at risk right now, there is hundreds of millions of lives still at risk because we haven't taken the action we needed to yeah. do that. So, at what point does this become almost like a wartime effort? Do you
1: think? Uh, uh, do no, no, I, okay, to? so I was waiting for you to either mention wartime effort, or I was going to bring it up because I think we treat. Climate, and especially in, in my space where we, we do tech investment, as if it were another technology that's in demand or to solve a problem. Um, and so, you know, and it, it's one of those things where, in terms of consumer products and services, it's never this sort of globally mobilized effort like, hey, we're all going to globally mobilize our use of TikTok. Because it's important. It's like people, supply and demand. People have preferences, but climate is a crisis. You know, yeah. it's it's not something like, do we want better ride hailing services? Do we want you know food delivery? And this would be a nice to have service that adds to our lifestyle. Um, for those that are very extreme in their views of climate, and I'm kind of increasingly getting to that point, is we are at war. Yeah. You know, we, we, you know, and I think if we look at what we're dealing with climate, you know, we're dealing with an existential crisis that deals with our
0: very existence. Yeah, it's interesting. We're not only at war with the climate, but we're at war with ourselves. With our
1: own, yeah. you know, sort of laissez-faire, blasé kind of view
0: towards... Or, 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 or our philosophical view of the fact that the planet is here to serve our needs from a resource perspective and so forth, versus we need to live in harmony with sure the system. Mm-hmm.
1: But but I, you know I guess you you can ask yourself you know it, it's like if we look at say the U.S. Uh, you know in in the '40s, at what point does the U.S. say we absolutely need to step into this war? Right. You know we see it going around around us. It's impacting our daily lives, but you know. Roosevelt is holding the line about entering the war until we have, you know, Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Um, And so, what is climate change's Pearl Harbor moment? Where it's like, we can no longer stay out of this war. We have to tackle it, we have to mobilize resources. Uh, And it was a moment where not just the government, but the populace understood okay. You know, life now is forever changed, you know, we're not gonna to go to the supermarkets and you know consume at will. We're gonna be sacrificing, you know, we're gonna to need to you know hoard, you know, tin and rubber and iron, and, you know, it's like we're gonna to have to make some real hard sacrifices and we gotta mobilize for this global effort. I do not think that we've had our Pearl Harbor moment nice. because we're still saying, oh, yeah, and I think to your point, yeah, we could, you know, we could use transition fuels. You know, we're talking about abated versus unabated emissions at COP twenty eight. You know, we are still sticking
0: our heads in the sand. Mm. Or maybe not most of the people that you know. Well it's focus a process it, but... of negotiation right now, right? There's negotiation against the the old system
1: yeah and, and that's that, that would be system. the equivalent of saying well we're not going to war with Nazi Germany we're we're, we're negotiating our diplomatic
0: solutions yeah
1: so it's like diplomacy with tanks and guns and bombs or <laughs> you know it, we're gonna call it a robust engagement but we're not going to say we're at war right. I mean that that's literally the equivalent of how we deal with climate change is we dance around it through semantics okay and legalities and it's not about like we can legalize it to,
0: to hell so when but, when when do you think that that pearl harbor moment might come like is it 20 years from now is it sooner i, I
1: think it's when we have a well i would like to think it's when we have like a severe loss of life that affects one of the major g7 countries so
0: major heat wave that that kills a large percentage of population. well i'd like okay What's i, I, I i'd
1: say i'd like to think Okay. But yeah. then we just went through COVID 19, and that was like, yeah. even yeah. as it was happening and people were dying around us, They're we still had demise. deniers. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I know. And, I, and I know. So, <laughs> yeah, it's just a bit of water. It's only up to my knees. I don't yeah. need to move my house yet. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I, you know, I, yeah. I'd like to think it
1: happened. You know, uh, the, the cynical answer is I think when uh, when most of the baby boomers have died off. Yeah. And and Gen and Gen Gen Z, yeah, yeah. Well, I think yeah, I
0: think culturally, Gen Z are going to. They're more even millennials will have a very different view of policy and 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 surveys show that there there's as every
1: every successive generation is more attuned to climate because they're the ones that are feeling it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes that makes sense.
0: So all right, let's let's get really futuristic here. Um, one of the things we like to do on the show is is look out in far, further in the future. So coming out the other side of this, um, you know, in in twenty or thirty years, let's say twenty fifties, right? We're in the twenty fifties. Um, how do you think? You know, what what do you think we can expect in terms of adaptation? What is life going to be like? And and you know, and how you know what will the world look like in terms of this are, this arena in terms of climate mitigation uh, and responses.
1: Okay, so I think if by twenty fifty we have not had that, what we're now started calling our Pearl Harbor moment, where you know the governments of the world have agreed that you know we need to coalesce around this issue, and if we're still sort of you know fussing and around the to, edges, it has to be by then. It has to. Well, be. you know, so the thing, but you have to. So if you look at where a lot of people. In power now are. Um, yeah, you, you have a lot of tech billionaires that are now just building underground bunkers, <laughs> right? They've literally just said, you know what, we potentially have the power to change things, but we're not going to. We're just gonna, we're just gonna hunker down, bunker yeah. down. Let's we're gonna invest take care of ourselves. in robot laser
0: sentries. To yeah, yeah and, and we're and... just
1: gonna take care of like our our, our niche little club of yeah. you know fellow billionaires, which is basically saying you know, let the other. 98% of the world's population just, you know, it's like, screw you guys yeah, and gals. yeah, uh, Or you have to fend for yourself. So if you look at that at a country level, if we have not mobilized around this issue by 2050, then it's going to be global north telling the global south, hey, good luck, folks. Yeah, um, You know, maybe it'll be a lot cheaper to manufacture things because we don't have cheap labor from Bangladesh or you know so or whatever. factories but the by, by that time it'll be automated anyway so we really don't need yeah. you know the greater you know the the bottom 70% of the world's population so yeah. good luck you know that that's a very cynical yeah. kind yeah. of uh, no but it's, but it's
0: possible but it's if, possible yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's very possible yeah,
1: I and if it, you know it, again I'd like to as I said I'd, I'd love to buy into that optimistic future that Roddenberry envisions that you know we're all humans looking out for humanity but in reality it's like you know, right, so people I, are self-interested and very corporate and it's yeah. like, you now,
0: know. Now, well, it's, it's capitalism. Can we reform capitalism enough? Yeah. Um, and, and,
1: and that's the thing is, you know, a lot of the stuff I've been like either in terms of podcasts or books lately or now saying that, you know, it, it's, it, you know, it's it's not, it, it's just thinking and I've been tossing around in my head is that climate change is not just an unintended byproduct of capitalism. It is the end yes. result of capitalism, yes.
0: like it's you, it, it is not a bug; it's a feature.
1: It's a feature. Yeah, it's yeah. its core. Yes. It's Absolutely. a core
0: feature of on that we we agree.
1: Yeah. So, um, so then the future. So, I guess 2050. What is my vision of the future in 2050? It depends on what is our vision of what capitalism mm-hmm. is or becomes, because capitalism, you know, if, in order for capitalism to work, you need the profit motive, uh, which means ultra-efficiency, which means you need something very extractive rather than circular.
0: Mm. Well, next week we're going to have Kim Stanley Robinson on the show. So yeah. it's great timing that you're on the show this week because it sort of sets the scene for, for his debates on this. But um,
1: that, that sounds very gloom and doom. Okay. And everyone I talk to says yeah. you're just the most pessimistic person working in climate. And I said anyone that thinks about it and thinks that you know human nature's brutal and savage, a very Hobbesian sort of vision of humanity, and is still spending their time nine to fiving climate Night. tech. It's like I'm not I'm not pessimistic, I'm just cynical. Yeah, yeah. Anyone that works in climate finance and climate tech is inherently optimistic. If you've been
0: studying this for a decade plus and, and you're, you're,
1: and you're still working yeah. trying to make the world a better yeah. place, it means that you could be as cantankerous as all you want, but you're still at the core an optimist. Yeah. So yeah, so for anyone that's well, because listening,
0: you 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 wouldn't be trying to change things unless exactly you want a better future. I'm not a defeatist. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, so um, uh, um, what are the the worst aspects of climate change we can expect in the 2050s if we don't do enough um you know uh, uh, you know what 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 could the world look like so that people get an idea why they should be getting behind this well i i hope it's nothing like
1: mad max fury road because <laughs> that's a very bleak <laughs> looking
0: future but you know it's not but food rationing, like we had during wartime,
1: absolutely. And, um, well, you know, I, I mean, I think you know we're going to look at a world, um, especially if we haven't really tried to go down the massive geoengineering route, because once we go geoengineering, that's really going to do some kind of funky psychedelic, very things. experimental, and yeah, yeah. That, that's going to be funky. So, assuming that we don't completely try to alter the planet through geoengineering, uh, we're going to definitely look at um, a lot less green space. You know, I, I don't think we're going to make the switch over to alternative proteins fast enough. So, um, either we're going to be deforesting at a greater rate so that we can kind of create enough protein based on beef and pork and all the things that people don't want to give up, um, which means that the natural world is just going to be a bit of a hellscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to lose mm-hmm. a lot of green area. Um, you know, Water is actually, I I think water is going to be probably one of the hugest geopolitical flashpoints
0: over the next couple of decades. Look at the um, Colorado River and such. Yeah, Colorado River,
1: um, you know, Hindu Kush is probably going to be an incredible flashpoint. We're already starting to see a lot of problems in like uh, Ethiopia, you know, all the conflicts that are happening in that part of Africa is all around. Um, I guess you know the the the, the mega dam that Ethiopia is, is building, and it's all basically trying to control water resources for mm. the next you know half century. And so, Sorry, well, we
0: can't end the podcast on a negative note. No, no, we need to end it on something positive. So, um, I, I guess I should not have taken us down that path if I wanted something positive. But um, I, you know, I, I'm also, uh, I, I'm, you know, we we, we share uh, similar views on, on this front, but. Um, Having said that, thirty years away, there's a lot of tech that is going to be really positive for mankind. So, what do you think of are the areas where we will have made significant improvements, and what will uh, the future bring that makes you optimistic?
1: Well, well let, let, let me tweet the question slightly, and this will be a nice segue into your next week's podcast with uh, with, with, with Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, you know, because uh, you know, obviously, you can't deal with tech without thinking about Elon Musk, whether you love him or hate him. Um, And one of the big things that's on his mind is, let's go to Mars. Uh, And a lot of cynics are like, well, why do you want to terraform Mars if we can't even kind of terraform our own planet? Mm. and I think in a lot of ways, what he's trying to do does make sense in the sense that any technology that we would do around terraforming would hopefully be applicable to some extent into our own planet. So if we can kind of make Mars a more habitable sure. planet, then we can actually, it doesn't have to be either or. We can use the same tech here. Um, and then I guess it's just the belief that whether we need to be kind of a two species, two planet species right. or more for that 10,000 year horizon. The insurance policy. Complex. Um, yeah. so, uh, you know, so I think, You know, the question becomes if we need to look at terraforming as a concept, you know, not just to terraform Mars, but to make now the U.S. atmosphere and the U.S., you know, the atmosphere more inhabitable, the soil more fertile, you know, the whole plethora of technologies that would fall under quote unquote terraforming, you know, what. What should we be developing? What Building could we be developing? Defenses and, sure, and, you know, it gets back to you know your your, your lightning round question about you know um, one of the the biggest technologies that I thought was instrumental was around um, the development of modern fertilizers, which basically increased crop yields and fed the planet. Now we're at that crisis point where fertilizers no longer cut it. They've kind of reached the end of their natural. Usefulness, mm. you know, it's sort of like the agricultural equivalent of Moore's law. Right. After you hit that theoretical limit, how do we jump onto that X S curve? So, mm. what? How do we feed the planet when fertilizers are no longer effective? And you figure that out, then you probably answered a piece around terraforming. Right. So, um, I, I would like to say any of those technologies, you know, under that broad umbrella, um, are going to be absolutely vital. Um, and I think, you know, again. Thinking about next week, you know, I I, I love the the Mars series, you know, the you know Red Mars, uh, Blue Mars, Green Mars, so and a lot of uh, you know
0: Kim Stanley Robinson's books. Ministry for the Future as well, you know, yeah. it's, you know, like you talking about the Pearl Harbor event, in, in that book he has a Pearl Harbor event. At, the, chapter one. The heat wave yeah. in India, yeah. Yeah, chapter so. one. And so, um, so yeah, so I, you know, it's it's never,
1: I don't think it's ever going to be one technology. I think a lot of people are like, what's that one technology? But climate is a very complex, uh, you know, um, systemic issue, which is going to require, you know, uh, Really, a buffet of a, of a variety of different um, technologies to sort of pull it off, and so anything that's sort
0: of how do we how do we reclaim our, our environment what 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 size workforce do you think is needed for this
1: you know okay, so um, you know I can kind of give kind of the clever pithy answer that you know I I firmly, when I when I talk about my work in climate VC, the one thing I love to tell people is, everything is climate. In the sense that all the work we do has a climate impact, whether we explicitly think it does or not. And so, if you are a banker working in corporate finance, you know there, you know you could be doing work that says, how do we how do we think about modeling and risk around financing sustainable technologies. You know, if you work in agriculture, how do we make agriculture more regenerative? If you work in fashion, how do we make, you know, fashion more circular? So, theoretically it, it should be a workforce of 7 billion people, hmm. meaning that whatever wherever you are in the world and whatever business you work in, we it's, need to start thinking yeah. about it in terms I like of that. sustainability. I like that. So, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to leave it at that. Or right. I guess by the time it really matters, we're a workforce of yeah. 8 to 10 depending on where projections are in world population by 2050.
0: Yeah, yeah well, 8 to 12. Yeah. it's going to stall at some point, but yeah, and food scarcity is going to be a, a factor in that. But all right, dude, well, listen, it's been fantastic to have you on the podcast. Yeah. For, those, for people listening and they're interested in what you're doing at Radical um, and following you and your work. Um, how can people stay in touch with you and where can they find more information about you well if they want to reach
1: out to me they can uh, you know I can be found on LinkedIn at Paul Arc and they'll see like this really long tie name uh, granted I think sometimes I get a lot of inbound requests to look at startups so Sometimes it takes me a while to get through the the inbox. Um, if anyone that's interested in the Radical Fund uh, could look at our website. If you give me a moment, I can never remember uh, the URL. So my CEO is probably going to kill me. Um, uh, it is uh, www.theradicalfund.com. Okay, so nothing too complex there. <laughs> uh, and if they see a lot of purple on the website, that's us. You know, that's, okay, cool. that's our color. But
0: fantastic. Well, Paul Arck, thanks for joining us on The Futurists. And uh, as we like to say, um, we will see you in the future. Thanks for having me, Brett. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you liked the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at at futurist podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore Tech News. On Facebook, Facebook facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, LinkedIn linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, Instagram instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, TikTok tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.